Could one of our most enduring narratives about the Middle Passage be made up? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Welcome to this special edition of Footnoting History for Wednesday, February 20th, 2013. Uh, my name is Nathan. And my name is Elizabeth. Oh, and today we will be discussing the interesting narrative of Alaudo Equiano, um, which was one of the main abolitionist narratives during the 18th century in Britain. And this is, of course, today a, a special two-person dual podcast, so exactly uh, special treat for you today um, in celebration of Black History Month. So first, we're just going to do kind of an overview of Equiano's life based on his memoir and some other information that we have, but then we're going we're gonna to expand it to discuss some more recent controversy that has appeared about the topic and go from there. Alado Equiano, according to his narrative, was born in approximately 1745 in modern-day Nigeria. However, by the age of 11, he and his sister were kidnapped by another African tribe. They changed hands several times until they were sold to Europeans as part of the triangle trade. Equiano's description of his journey from Africa to the West Indies is one of the most famous of the Middle Passage, the horrifying um, trip that Africans would take. They would be chained up in the hold. At least 10 to 12 percent of them would die on the ship alone. And then just be thrown overboard. Exactly. Their bodies would. Yes, their bodies would be thrown overboard. So we get the most, one of the most enduring uh, stories of the Middle Passage from his work. Finally, he then ends up in the West Indies, and he is bought by a Michael Pascal, a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. And he actually ends up serving on Pascal's boat with him through even the French and Indian War. Throughout this time, Equiano is renamed. Uh, he's first given on the slave ship Michael. He then is bought by one owner who names him Jacob until finally he ends up with Pascal, who tries to name him Gustavus. At this point, Equiano tried to fight back. Remember, he's a young boy. He would only be 11 or 12 or so at this point in time, and he's now gone through several name changes. So he tried to fight back, and as he puts it, he was cuffed to accept the idea that his name is Gustavus. And that's actually the name that he does. He gives his new last name and everything to his children that he eventually has. Uh, we, should, we should note that... Um, uh, he's given the name Gustavus because uh, his owner is a fan of uh, Gustavus, king of Sweden. Exactly. Uh, and the other thing is he, his the last name, uh, which I don't think he mentioned, no, he is Vasa. Yes. So his full name is Gustavus Vasa. Anyway. Yes, it is. But he gives his daughters the name Vasa. So obviously, you know, about 40 years later when he ends up passing away, he has fully kind of accepted that that is indeed his name. Well, it was sort of beaten into him. <laughs> Literally. So he serves as a slave during the French and Indian War for Pascal. Pascal thought that he was so bright and so much better than even, as he put it, than his white sailors, that he ends up sending him to a pair of sisters in Britain for school and education. And it's there that uh, Equiano both learns to read and also converts to Christianity with the permission of Pascal, with the permission of his master. One of my, my thoughts is that he might have been sent to learn how to read and write in order to learn clerking duties and maybe make him a more valuable slave. Because even though Pascal told Equiano that he would give him his freedom, when Equiano goes back, he is actually sold again. And Equiano refused to believe this and, in fact, told his new owner 
that he could not sell me to him, nor to anyone else. I have served him many years, and he has taken all my wages and prize money. I have been baptized, and by the laws of the land, no man has a right to sell me. So Equiano really seemed to believe that by converting to Christianity, that he would escape this, uh, this whole rigmarole of slavery, that he would get out, and found out, unfortunately for him, that it was not true, that he does get sold again. He ends up, Equiano ends up believing that this is because he needs to pay for his sins. And finally, he is sold to Robert King, a Quaker. King allows Equiano to earn his own money and even tells him, Equiano is about 20 when King buys him, and King tells Equiano that if he can earn the 40 pounds that King paid for him, he can buy his freedom. And Equiano manages to do this by his early 20s. And to give us an idea, those 40 pounds would be worth about 4,000 pounds today. Now, he was such a good clerk that King wanted him to stay on as his partner, but Equiano felt it was too dangerous. For example, at one point when he was on a sailing ship, he was almost kidnapped back into slavery. So he travels to the UK, joins the abolitionist movement, and that's where we get our memoir, where it's published as The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Lauda Equiano, and it's published in 1789. So, woo, French Revolution going on. <laughs> I don't think that those two things are related. No, but woo, French Revolution. <laughs> Well, um, as you'll see in our pod, my podcast with Christine in a few weeks, um, not everyone was all uh, woo French Revolution, but uh, well, that's for a later podcast. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so <laughs> after the printing of the interesting narrative, this is a digression I'd like to get into. So in Britain, the interesting narrative gets reprinted eight times. In the U.S. at the same time period, it only goes through the original printing. Nobody wanted it. But in Britain, it's got over eight reproductions because everybody was buying it. So it becomes, in, in England at least, one of those real narratives of the abolitionist movement. And of course, the abolitionist movement in England is older than it was in the U.S. and makes more inroads earlier in England than it does in the U.S. But by the early 19th century, slavery was actually outlawed in England. And I believe by the 1830s, it was outlawed in the entire British Empire. So their abolitionist movement, which was actually started by the Quakers, which again was what Robert King, Equiano's last owner, was. It definitely was more successful, which explains why it goes through eight printings in England, uh, but none in, in the U.S. And Equiano himself actually went around, he went on a book tour um, to promote his book, because this is, this is how he made his living. Mm -hmm. um, it, it actually provided him with a very comfortable estate. Very much so. But he goes around, not only in support of the abolitionist movement, but um, sort of promoting his own book at the same time. So the book actually becomes moderately financially lucrative for him. Oh, it definitely does. Um, he actually, he ends up marrying a British woman, a white British woman. They have two daughters, and every single of the, the reprinting in England, he made sure to include the, the announcement that he was now married to this woman. And when he dies at approximately age 57, the estate that he leaves to his one daughter, unfortunately his other daughter passed away, his wife passed away very early, and his, one of his daughters dies as a child, so he leaves it to his other daughter. Actually, his wife dies, his wife only dies a couple of years before him. Well, she still dies at 34, so I feel like... Well, she dies at 34, but he's like 20 years older yeah. than her when, when they die, so... And so the other daughter, Johanna, Johanna Vassa, inherits the entire estate, which today would be a lump sum of approximately 80,000 pounds. So not bad for a man who only, you know, 30 years before had bought his freedom. Not at all too shabby on that one. No, not at all. No. So that, I mean, that is Equiano's memoir in a nutshell. He obviously had embraced kind of his, his Western upbringing. I think we were discussing that earlier. Yeah, yeah. That uh, 
that his education was definitely Western, the way he describes his home, his memory of his land. Right, and I, yeah, I was mentioning this earlier. Um, whenever I was reading um, Equiano's autobiography, um, I was struck by immediately how he goes about describing his home. And it's in a very Western sort of way that you see, the earliest I've seen it is Tacitus mm -hmm. um, writing in the first century when Tacitus is describing the Germans living to the north of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. um, in his work Germania. And you start with geography and yeah. describing sort of the geographical location. And then you describe in, in a very not rigid but but you go through a series of cultural categories like buildings and what they look like and social customs and how do men relate to women and all of that you also see this um, in for example uh, Hernan Cortez's descriptions of the Aztec Empire um, in the 16th century yes. and so there's this long established Western tradition of writing ethnography of describing ethnicities and it's done in a very specific way um, yes. And I, I don't know, I was just, I was struck at how similar his narrative was. And I mean, this is evidence of his, of his education in England, I guess. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's um, evidence of his education. Um, and very recently, one uh, historian found a collection of slave journals in Maryland, and he's publishing an account of those. But he noticed how formulaic the opening of so many letters were. And it's because of this education system. It's because in the 18th and 19th century, these would have been how young men would have been educated to a certain point. They would have read these works. They would have understood that this is the way to talk. This is the way to convey a description. Well, and I mean, this gets into, this gets into a couple of different categories where I think we can talk about how Equiano, his view of himself mm -hmm. and his view of what it means to be both black and what it means to be civilized is very much influenced by this education. Right. Equiano... An educated man, eventually a, you know, not well-to-do, but definitely comfortable man, marries, marries a white woman, converts to Christianity, not sure exactly why he is a slave. And we get in the, the memoir different points, like he tries to argue that maybe Africans were just dark because of the sun, that's it, that it was just basically a perpetual sunburn or tan, and that so they weren't very different. Which is a long-standing, yes. which is sort of a long-standing stereotype very much. Um, yeah. in Western authors who write about Africa, um, is that the people, why are people there darker? Well, anyone who goes out in the sun for too long gets a sunburn, the sunburn makes you go tan, so these people obviously just spend a lot of time in the sun. Right, and Equiano tries to use that as an argument for why, well, we're not that different. It's just that we spend too much time in the sun. And then later on, when Equiano spends some time in Virginia, and he is terrified by the treatment of other people, he attempts to wash the dark color off his skin. Again, a young boy, scared, still a slave, can't get out, had his name changed multiple times, sees people being beaten, and so what does he do? He thinks, I can wash this black off me. And so it's just this idea that if you get the color off him, he would no longer be a slave in this horrible system. And that definitely feeds into the idea of, of how people saw themselves, how people saw the system. Equiano understood that the only reason he was a slave was because of the color of his skin. And he, he later thinks, um, as we, we said in the quote, that because he's converted to Christianity, that he can no longer be a slave because he's civilized now. Right. I, I mean, and, and, and he's, he's sort of appealing to where Paul says, um, in Christ, there is no slave or free, mm -hmm. uh, Jew or Greek. Right. So that, so that somehow Christianity ought to be equalizing. Right. That because he has accepted this religion, 
he cannot be a slave. And this goes also even farther because, of course, at this point in time, we are now getting religious justifications for slavery. It's the idea that all, that all Africans are descendants of Ham, the son of Noah who looked upon him naked and did not, you know, and didn't cover him. And because of that, they have to be slaves to their brothers and sisters. And so we start getting these religious justifications. So he's using, Equiano uses a religious justification for why he can't be a slave. He's not arguing... Which is sort of an interesting term, yeah. yeah. He's not arguing that not all African... I mean, I think he tries earlier with the discussion of color and we're just out in the sun too long to say that we're not that different, we shouldn't be slaves. But he's saying... Right, and maybe that's why he uses that Western model of ethnography, yeah. is that even in his ethnography, I think he is he's attempting to sort of portray the 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 tribe that he comes from in Africa yeah. as being less foreign mm -hmm. to a Western audience than you might think. Right. He's trying to say we are civilized like you. Right. This is and I mean what this really reveals to us is is what the Western model mm -hmm. or what the, the Western idea or the English idea of what it means to be civilized is in, in the eighteenth century. Right. And then unfortunately for Equiano he learns that ultimately none of that matters. There have been various um, debates and if you're interested a very interesting work on the issue of the of economic systems and the question of color and religious justification. Eric Williams, writing in the 1940s, his book Capitalism and Slavery, we're going to have a little note up on the webpage about this, but it starts by saying that racism comes after the economic need. I would definitely recommend reading a little Eric Williams, but I think now we should probably turn to the controversy over the work. Oh, yes. Yes, Nathan, <laughs> take it away with the controversy. This work has been highly uh, celebrated and lauded as um, an excellent example of uh, slave literature and one of our primary sources of information for the conduct of the Middle Passage uh, in the 18th century. However, there's a question about whether or not Equiano is actually African. Yes. And that was raised about five years ago. Was that when that work came out? Actually, it was uh, it was it was raised about ten years ago um, on a listserv. Oh. <laughs> in 1999. Okay. Uh, the book I think came out several several years ago. Yes. Uh, yeah. The AHR review says in 1999, Vincent Coretta provoked a listserv firestorm. <laughs> Flame war. Uh, it came out in 2005. Okay. So yes, the book comes out. Okay. So I was thinking five years ago, but it was actually 2005. Right, so he argues, based on two pieces of information, that Equiano might not have been born in Africa, but was actually born in South Carolina. Basically, no one can prove it either way. Right, so the question is whether or not uh, he just interviewed a number of slaves and had sort of, he had amalgamated, yes. he had amalgamated all of these stories right. um, to create sort of a boilerplate slave narrative. Right, because no one argues that any of his descriptions of the Middle Passage seem out of bounds for what we know about it. So it's not like he was creating information that was utterly brand new and was completely shocking. It always leads back to, for the historians and for the teachers, does it matter? How much does right, it matter? Right. This is an issue also that we see in, for example, Holocaust. Uh, any oral historian has to has to deal with this issue, but yes. we see this issue, for example, in Holocaust survivors mm -hmm. um, who, who survived the concentration camps, who spend years and years and years recounting their experience in the concentration camps and everyone else is also telling their story. Mm -hmm. So what happens is sometimes Holocaust survivors begin to amalgamate without even realizing it, this narrative that emphasizes certain elements that appear in other people's stories 
And it solidifies certain facts about the story right. while making others more amorphous or, or it diminishes certain others. Because anytime you tell a story, you have to put certain things in and leave certain things out. And so that, that sort of, mm -hmm. um, you solidify it in a very specific way. And so oral history kind of has to deal with this issue. I will say that I think for Equiano, even if he took on um, the stories of other people, I have always felt that he gave them a voice. You know, there's the whole, there's a lot with, um, with colonial and post-colonial studies, the question of the subaltern. Right. And can the subaltern speak? And Equiano gave the subaltern a voice. And because he did have this very Western style of writing, this very Western education, he made it accessible. Yeah, I don't know. This gets into a kind of weird, is a falsified narrative. Also, and what is what is your definition of falsified? Because right. um, in the Middle Ages, for example, um, Equiano's adaptation or um, aggregation of slave stories, even if he had not experienced it himself, would have been viewed with some level of truth. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it spoke to a larger truth. Right. And that's, uh, so, maybe I'm so just medieval. what is factual and what is truthful are, are not necessarily the same mm -hmm. thing. Right. And I suppose, um, perhaps I, since I, you know, am a historian of the Middle Ages, perhaps I spend too much time with my records <laughs> because I always, I err on the side of Equiano did a good thing. So, Equiano's narrative, does it matter whether or not he actually experienced it? It matters a great deal whether or not someone is telling the truth. But ultimately, for the purposes of history, does it matter whether or not Equiano actually experienced the narrative that he purported to write? Let us know in the comment section on, on the blog. Uh, we're interested to hear from you and your opinions. Okay, uh, I'm Nathan. And I am Elizabeth. And thank you for joining us. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.weebly.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as information about upcoming podcasts. Tune in this Saturday, when we'll be talking about the Cathars, the Templars, and the Siege of Montsegur. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.